take us back The place we began The simple pursuit Of nothing but you The innocence of A heart in your head God take us back Oh God take us back To an unswerving faith In the power of your name A heart beating for your kingdom to reign A church that is known For your presence again God take us back Good morning everybody Good morning, I'm Robert Hodum I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Island Community Church And I just want to welcome all of you in person You're a good looking bunch And uh Welcome to all the people who are worshiping with us online. We're glad you're here too. Uh, we've been in a sermon series called Kingdom Come, based on the book of 1 Samuel in the last several weeks. And one of the things that we've been learning from the book of 1 Samuel is that the kingdom of God is actually the reign of God through Jesus in the hearts of his people. And... Uh, at the time of the events in 1 Samuel, Jesus wasn't here on earth. He hadn't been born yet. But the people in the Old Testament were expecting a Savior because God promised in his word that he was going to send a Savior, and his name is Jesus. And that's what the whole Bible is about. This book is about Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, it's about the first coming of Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus' arrival here on earth and his second coming. And so... The kingdom of God is something that's inside of us. If you call Jesus your Lord, that's what the kingdom of God is, okay? And the title of my message today is Obedience Proves Trust. Obedience Proves Trust. And we're going to be studying in the book of 1 Samuel 13 and chapter 15. And I encourage you, if you brought a Bible, you can turn to it. 1 Samuel 13, we'll be reading from there in just a few moments. If you have a way to take notes... I'm going to also encourage you to do that, whether you do it on your phone or maybe you brought a pencil and a pad with you. A short pencil is better than a long memory. And if, you will, if you'll take notes and you'll, you'll listen up, I believe that God has something for you today. I think he's got a word for us. And so, uh, obedience proves trust. You know, the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's the inspired word of God. And the instructions that are in the Word contain the full authority of God. Now, you may say, well, what does that mean, Rob? If you get a letter from the Internal Revenue Service and it tells you you owe the Internal Revenue Service $5,000 and you have 30 days to pay, that letter contains the full authority of the United States government. Now, some people may choose to throw the letter away they may just choose to ignore the letter or try to change their identity. Some people may write a check for $50 and put on the check paid in full and send it to the IRS. They may try to get out of it, but ultimately you're going to either have to prove you don't owe the money or you're going to have to pay it because that letter contains the authority of the government. Well, this book 
that I'm holding in my hands is the Bible, and it contains the instructions of God, and it contains the full authority of God in His Word. And when we come across an instruction that's in this book, we are under obligation to apply it in our lives and to adopt it and, we're, and to believe it. Okay? Amen? Um, now, the only people say, I trust God. Well, I trust Him. You know, He's, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. But the only documentation that you trust God is whether you obey the instructions in his word. That's the only proof. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Why did he say that? Because that's the proof that you do trust him as your Savior. That's the only documentation. And that, that, you know, all throughout the Bible, God gives instructions to people. And then he creates a set of circumstances that seem crazy, it seems illogical, it seems inconvenient, it shatters the trust of the people that the instructions have been given because of their circumstances. And let me give you some examples. The children of Israel cross the Jordan River, and they see Jericho, and Jericho has these huge high walls, real thick walls. And You know what his instructions were to defeat the city? He said, I want you to march around the city one time a day for six days. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around six to seven times and then shout. That's how you defeat the city. Um, Jesus sees a blind man in John chapter 9, and he spits in the dirt. (laughs) Spit, spit, clay, clay. He puts clay on the guy's eyes, blind man's eyes, and he said, now I want you to walk a couple of miles to the Pool of Siloam, and I want you to wash your eyes out. And this is a blind man. You know, if that, if that had been me, I would have said, Jesus, you know, here in Memphis, we've got the Southern College of Optometry. If you'll just get me a ride over there, I'm, I'm pretty sure that somebody can help me. Is all this spit and clay really necessary? And, you know, I'm a blind man, and you're asking me to walk to this pool. I mean, you know, come on, Jesus. Uh, there was a general in Syria in, in 2 Kings 5, and his name was Naaman. And he was a great general, but he, he had leprosy from his head to his foot. And he heard that there might be an answer to his problem in Israel. So he went to Israel, and he sought out the prophet Elijah. Well, Elijah didn't even come to his door. Elijah sent a servant. And the servant came to the door, and he said, Naaman, the instruction from the Lord is that you go to the Jordan River, and you dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and you'll you'll be healed. Well, Naaman was infuriated. He was like, look, I came all the way down from Syria, and, uh, you know, the prophet didn't even come out to meet me. He sent somebody. I thought he'd at least come out and wave his hand over me, the Scripture says, and so I could be healed. And now he wants me to go get in this river? Are you kidding me? We've got rivers up in Syria that are a lot better than this. Why do I have to do this? But every one of those circumstances, if you will read in Scripture, the people that followed the instructions of the Lord, they got their miracle. It affected their future. And that's why uh, that leads me to our core truth today. The instructions that you follow determine the future you'll create. I hope you'll write that down. The instructions that you follow determine the future that you will create. We're going to be studying today about two uh, circumstances in the life of King Saul. He was given two instructions by the Lord, and Saul didn't follow the instructions. 
and it affected his future. And uh, these are very sad chapters in the Bible, and let's get right into it. Uh, The first instruction I'm going to put on the screen, you don't have to turn to it in your Bibles, but it's actually from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. And this is an instruction that the prophet Samuel gave to Saul. A prophet means someone who hears from God and then they speak to the people. So this is God's word directly from Samuel to Saul. And this is what he, this is what he tells Saul. Then go down to Gilgal, go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what to do. So he tells him two basic things. Go and wait until I come. Those are the instructions. Samuel's going to do everything else. He's going to tell him what to do, and he's going to do the offering. So, okay, are y'all with me? Okay, let's jump to 1 Samuel 13 and see the rest of the story, how this turns out. So Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash, the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines at Geba, and the Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear! And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came, they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. So just to summarize where we are at this point, God tells Saul, go to Gilgal, wait seven days until the prophet Samuel shows up to show you what to do. Saul gathers a force of 3,000 men. His son, Jonathan, defeats a Philistine force at Geba, and it enrages the Philistines. So they turn around and they raise 30,000 chariots. There's at least one man in each one of those chariots, probably two. 6,000 men on horses and troops that there were so many of them that it was like trying to count sand at at the seashore. That's what the Bible says. So Saul... In the natural, he's in a desperate situation here, right? He's only got 3,000 men. So he's like vastly outnumbered here, okay? So God set up a circumstance, go and wait, and then now he's, this circumstance is created for Saul. So let's read and see what happens in verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So it doesn't get any better for Saul in the natural here in verse 6 and 7. The people, the 3,000 men that he were depending on go AWOL. They start running away. They start hiding. They see all the forces, and they're like, I'm not having any part of that. I'm not committing suicide. I'm not having any part of this. You know, so for Saul, it's, it's, it, in the natural, it's a dire circumstance. But his instructions were what? Go and wait. So let's, let's read in verses 8 and 9 what he did. It says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. 
So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Then in verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him, and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now let's go back and just look at that instruction one more time. Okay. And I've underlined in the instruction from 1 Samuel 10 verse 8 that he was instructed to go. And Samuel says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to do the offerings, but you're to wait seven days until I come. Now, part of what he said was, you didn't come in the days appointed. That's a lie. There's nothing in the Bible in here where it says it was the eighth day. Friends, God is never late. God is always on time. He's not slow as some consider slowness. He's patient with us. And so Samuel was not late coming back. And isn't it like us sometimes when, you know, when we are confronted with what we've done wrong, we want to accuse somebody else and blame somebody else. We, oh, well, it's your fault. He's blaming God here. It's your fault. You didn't, do, you didn't hold up your part of it, you know. Have you ever blamed God or have you ever blamed somebody else and refused to acknowledge your responsibility? That's what he's doing here. But I think what he's also trying to do, what Saul is trying to do, he's trying to reach out for God's favor because he is faced with just over, overwhelming circumstances here of all of these troops and all of these chariots and, and his men are abandoning him. And he's trying, he's trying through his own works to reach out to God. He's trying to do a good deed here. He said, well, I'll just do some sacrifice. I know I'm not supposed to, but I'll just do some sacrifices here. I, I need to get in God's good graces. And Jesus, in John chapter 6, he also faced a similar circumstance with some people then. This was right after he took two loaves and five fishes, and he broke them and gave the disciples, and he fed over 5,000 people at one time. And these, after the people had eaten all the food, they came up to Jesus and they asked this following question here in John chapter 6. It says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus is saying, I don't want your good deeds. God doesn't want your works. He doesn't want your religiosity. He doesn't want you to try to do things to get in good favor with him. He doesn't want your offering or you to go on mission trips or you to even attend church. What he wants you to do is to believe on me, believe on Jesus, to trust in Jesus. That's what God wants from each of us. And some of you in here in a crowd this large, you have never trusted in Jesus. You don't believe in Jesus as your Savior. Jesus came and he died a sacrificial death for us because that satisfied God's sense of justice, his Father. He willingly did it. So God the Father up here asked Jesus, he said, the world needs a Savior, and Jesus said, I'll do it. And he subjected himself under the will of the Father. And what the Father God is saying is, is that if you want a relationship with me, I want you to subject yourself under the authority of Jesus. I want you to believe on Jesus, 
That's what I want you to do. I don't want your religious works. I want you to believe on my son, Jesus. And you say, well, how can I have a relationship with Jesus? Well, our instruction book here in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it tells us what to do. And it's on the screen here, and it says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is what God requires of each of us. And friends, if you are in here in this audience and you have never believed on Jesus to save you from your sins and you have never made him the Lord of your life, it's a one-time event that you do. If you've never done that, we're going to have an altar call here in a few minutes with prayer volunteers, and I encourage you, friends, don't leave here without Jesus. Don't leave here without Jesus. I love Jesus because of what he did for me. And uh, don't leave here without him. I want you to come to the altar at the time and, and pray with somebody. And if you're online, you need to text prayer to 97,000 and someone will contact you and they'll pray with you about making Jesus your Savior. Now, the rest of this message is not going to make sense if you don't get that. The rest of this message is because from here on out, we're going to be talking about doing things. But we're not talking about doing things in order to get God to love us. We're going to be doing, talking about doing things because God does love me. Just like my, my dad asked me to do something, I don't do things for my dad because to get him to love me. I do things for my dad because he does love me, because I want to please him. And so for the rest of the message, we're going to be talking about these instructions that God gave Saul, but in the context of a person who is, has a heart that's surrendered to Jesus, okay? So what were the instructions again? Basically, it boils down to this, 1 Samuel 10, verse 8. Then go, and you shall wait. Those were the two instructions. I'm wondering this morning, has God told any of you to go somewhere? That's the question I have for you. Has God told any of you to go somewhere? For those of you who are online, I'm glad you joined us today. You know, we started online services about a year ago, and the reason we did it, they closed the church down. If we hadn't had online services, we would have just had to close up. But friends, we're open now, and I've had my shots, and I think most of the people in here have had uh, shots or they're working on it. And the city of Memphis has said that you can open up. We were closed during the period when the city of Memphis said to shut down to come under their authority. And, you know, if you're at home sick today, I'm not talking to you. If you don't have transportation to church, I'm not talking to you. If your doctor has told you not to come to church because you have comorbid risk, I'm not talking to you. But friends, there are some of you watching online today. You just decided, well, you know, they don't have coffee service at the church anymore, and I, you know, I need my coffee, and so I'm just going to stay home in my PJs. Some of you are watching in bed right now. I guarantee you. Uh, some of you just made a decision today that you were not going to assemble yourselves with other people. And I want to just share with you Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. You can write it down in your margins. The Bible is very clear on this. It says, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves, which is the habit of some, but yet draw together and encourage one another, 
all the more as the time draws closer. What time is it talking about? Jesus' return. See, when Jesus returns, the kingdom's going to come on this earth. It's not here right now. But as the time draws closer, friends, you need, there's a, God may be telling you, you need to go to church. You need to get up out of bed. You need to get ready. And you need to, you need to go to church. And we're open, and I invite you to come. God may be telling some of you, I want you to go on missions. You know, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And he was talking to his disciples, and he, he mentioned Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria because that was their local area, you know. He said, he said, you're going to be my witnesses. Do we have local missions here? Well, COVID has, has affected our local missions, but I'm happy to report we are, have had interviews with local missions director, and I believe the Lord pretty soon is going to show us who that person is. And I fully anticipate that pretty soon we are going to resume local missions here. And friends, it's going to be an opportunity to teach English as a second language to foreign nationals who don't, who don't know English and need it. And we teach them through Bible stories. So not only are they learning English, they're learning about God. And they're learning about the good news of Jesus. And some of these people don't even, don't even have a Bible and didn't even know anything about Jesus. We have an opportunity for people to go to men's athletic ministries over here in Uptown and to shoot a basketball with a kid or help a child with their homework. And some of these kids, they don't have a father figure at home or their mother uh, is not there. And we can show the love of Jesus to them. God may be telling some of you, I want you to go to the St. Jude Target House. And I want you to do a crafts night with uh, the families over there. Families who are going through pediatric cancer, it's the hardest time in, in their lives that they face. And their, their child is facing death. And we go over there and we... We, we just try to have an experience with them where they can get their mind off of that for one night and try to show the love of Christ to them. Or to go to the Glen Mary Retirement Home uh, where we go over there and, and we'll have a trivia night and we'll have snacks and we'll pray with those people. And some of those people live there and their children put them in there. And in a month's time, the only people that they see from the outside are people from Island Community Church. Friends, I've seen it. I've been to these places, and we're going to start. And maybe God's telling some of you. Jesus gave the Great Commission. He said, go. Is he telling some of you, you know, I need you to go in the community where you are? Jesus may be telling some of you today in his instructions. Part of that instruction was go to the end of the earth. Here at Island Community Church, we go to the end of the earth. We do. We've got a trip planned for Guatemala. It's going to be up on the screen here. And the deadline for this trip, for registering for this trip, was last Sunday. I didn't know that it was extended until, like, yesterday or the day before yesterday. I thought it was closed. We've got enough people to go right now, and we're going. But I believe that the reason that it was extended is because God was telling some people in this room and some of you who are watching online, and you need to hear me, the Holy Spirit was telling you in your heart, I need to go. I need, I need to go, but you, you, you chose not to go. And some of you said, well, you know, Rob, I don't speak Spanish, and I don't, you know, I don't even have a passport, and, 
now's not the right time for me to go. I can't go. I'd have to arrange my work schedule. I'd have to take vacation. I'd have to pull my kid out of pre-K that week. And it's all arranged, and I, I can't do Now it's not a convenient time for a family trip for me. I just can't do it. I'll, I'll pray for you, but I'm gonna, and I may give some money, but I, somebody else, I'm going to let somebody else go. I'm not saying that everybody should go, but the Holy Spirit is telling some of you in this room and some of you online that he wants you to go on this trip. That was Jesus' commission that we're to go and be his witnesses in our local area and throughout the world, and you have an opportunity. And friends, I've got news for you. If you're waiting around for a good, the best time, it's, it's not going to happen. Ecclesiastes 11.4 has, I've got a verse for you. I've got a verse for you. Look at what it says. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who observes the clouds will not reap. What does that mean? Well, if you're a farmer and, you know, it's real windy and you've got a bunch of seeds and you're out, it's real windy outside, you may say, well, I'm not going to sow today because the, the seeds will all blow off. You know, they might not even go in the ground. It's not worth my time to, you know, go sow a seed. Or you may say, you know, I'm not going to get my tractor out in the field today because it looks like it might rain and I might get stuck in the mud. Or I'm not going to go pick tomatoes because I might get wet. It might come a storm. Friends, there's always going to be Philistines massing at your border. If you're a child of God, Jesus said, you will suffer tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Friends, there's always going to be people who have supported you, and when you start taking a stand for God, they're going to scatter. They're going to do just like they did Saul. He did it for seven days, and as he stood for God, the people that were supposed to support him abandoned him. Friends, there's never going to be a good time for, to serve the Lord. It's going, to, it's going to cause you to stretch. It's going to cause you, it may seem illogical to you. It may seem, it may even make you mad the way that it did Naaman, that you have to follow God's instructions. But the Learning Bible version of this verse, I think, sums it up pretty well. It says, if you wait for the perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. If you wait around, if you're just going to wait around, oh, I'll go next year to Guatemala. I'll sign up for English as a second language next year. I'll let somebody else do it this year because I'm too busy. Friends, if you do that, there's never going to be a right time for you. The Bible says that. You've got to make a decision. Are you going to trust what this book says on the instructions? Now, if you can't go, if you really can't go and do these things because you've got so many commitments, then... I'm, I'm encouraging you to look at your commitments because, friends, we need to be about doing God's work. We've only got limited time on this earth to be doing his work. And I'm not talking about doing the work of God to get his love the way that Saul did. I'm not talking about doing a good deed. I'm talking about getting Jesus in your heart and making him the Lord of your life and not doing it because Jesus expects you to do it, but doing it because it's something that Jesus has for you to do, doing it because you love him doing it out of a love of Christ. Is God telling you to go? Some people in this room, there's no doubt in my mind, you thought about it and you said, I can't do it this year. I encourage you to pray about it and follow what the Lord is telling you to do. Now, he, know, he told Saul not only to go, but he also told him to wait. And in the next verse, I've got the, the wait underlined. Is God telling you, some of you, you need to wait 
And what would he be telling you to wait on? Well, we've got a, a big crowd of young people in here. And I know some of you are in dating relationships. And, you know, you may have discussed with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiance, ever how far along you are, uh, about having sexual relations before you get married. You say, oh, Rob, you're talking about sex at church. Well, yeah, I mean, sex is from God. It's a good thing. It's something that he gave us to enjoy. It's something that he gave us so that we could have children, okay? But sex is only condoned by God between one man and one woman and only in the confines of a marital relationship. Now, hear me. And if you have someone who is encouraging you or, or, uh, you know, putting pressure on you to have sexual relations before you get married, God's instructions are really clear on it. But before I get to that instruction, I want to encourage you, you need to have a talk with that person that you're dating, and you need to ask them, tell me about your salvation experience. When did you accept Jesus into your heart? Because the Bible is also very clear that we should not be dating and marrying people. You shouldn't date anybody you wouldn't marry, and you shouldn't marry anyone who is not a Christian who Jesus is not the Lord of their life. Friends, it's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for loss. It's a recipe for sorrow. I've seen it time and time again, and the scripture forbids it. And it's, again, it's not something that God's demanding of you. It's something that God wants for you. God wants something for you. Okay? And sex outside the marital relationship is sexual immorality. And 1 Corinthians 6 18 is very clear. It says, flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Friends, you've got to run from it. Flee means run away from it. It means be like Joseph at Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife grabbed his robe trying to seduce him, and he ran out the door. He didn't have any clothes on, but he, he obeyed this. He knew that he could not commit that sin. And friends, you've got to flee. You've got to run away from it. That's what God's instruction is. And friends, the instruction that you follow determines the future that you're going to create for yourself. You can just write it down. It's true. So let's look at the rest of this story in this chapter and see how it turned out. In verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has, and the Lord, after man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So he lost his kingdom. His children and his children's children were not going to be the kings of Israel anymore. And this is so sad. And this is a very famous verse in verse 14 because it talks about being a man after God's heart. And that's actually referring to King David. And we're going to have a lesson about King David next Sunday. David was Israel's second king. And I've had a discussion with people. What does it mean to be a man after God's heart? Well, we find out really here at the end of the verse. It says, Saul, you have not done what the Lord commanded you. A man after God's heart is one that does what the Lord commands, that does the will of God. That's what a man after God's heart is. I want to share this verse from Proverbs with you. It should be very familiar to you for those of you who come to church. And I encourage for those of you that don't know this verse to memorize it. It's a good verse. And it says, trust in the Lord 
with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your straight your paths. You know, a lot of times when we follow God and we take a stand for God and we, we do what it's, the Bible says to do, it may seem like we're going around the wrong way or we're going in, we're, going to, we're taking a crooked path. But what's the quickest way between two points, between point A and point B? It's a straight, it's a straight path, right? It's a straight line. And what this verse is saying is he's, God's saying, if you'll do it my way, if you'll trust in me, if you'll obey me, I'm going to make your path straight. I'm going to get you going where you need to go. I'm going to be with you. And you're going to get there sooner than you would have if you, if you tried to do it your own way. So we need to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. So I'll go back to the core truth. The instructions you follow determine the future you create. Saul lost his kingdom. Friend, don't you lose something in your life because you didn't follow God's instruction. Now, I want to, I'm not going to tell you about the battle. There's a big battle that's looming with the Philistines and all these troops. And Saul, it looks like he's down in and out. But I want to encourage you to go home today and read the rest of chapter 13 and 1 Samuel chapter 14 and read about what happened in the battle. And actually, there's a podcast that's coming out tomorrow afternoon. You'll be able to access that podcast. And Barrett and I discuss this battle and we discuss some principles of the Lord from this battle. And I want to encourage you, uh, to go home and read that. I'm going to get ready to get into chapter 15, but before I do, I want to tell you a story about a, uh, a man I saw on TV, and he wanted to get a dog, and he had a friend who was a breeder, and he'd never been over to the kennel, so he called the guy up, and he said, hey, I, I, I want to get a dog, and the guy said, well, come on over. So he goes over to the kennel, and the breeder says, this dog costs $10,000, and this dog is 5000 he said, this dog is $350, and I've got one over there that I'll give you for free. And the man looks at the dogs, and he said, well, good night. What's the difference? He said, the free dog is as good-looking as the $10,000 dog. And the breeder said, well, the $10,000 dog will follow your instructions. The free dog will do whatever he wants. Friends, you are of no value in the kingdom of God, if you will not follow instructions. In fact, you're of no value to your boss at work. You're of no value to any organization if you will not follow instructions. There's no place for people who just want to go rogue and do whatever they want in God's kingdom. There's no place for you. God loves you, but you have no value if you will not follow instructions. Well, God gave Saul a second instruction. He was rebuked by Samuel in chapter 13 and told that his kingdom would not continue. But here in chapter 15, we're going to see that God re rebukes Saul as king after the second time. So let's read this story and see what, what happens. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, oxen, sheep, camel and donkey. So here's the second instruction. Okay. And you may say, well, gee, why are they killing the animals and the little infants? What did they do? Well, Sometimes nations go to war, 
And if you want to read more about this, you can go look in Exodus chapter 17. God swore an oath when the Amalekites, the way that they did the children of Israel in Exodus 17, he said he would be at war with the Amalekites. And so God is telling Saul, go and wipe these wicked people out. Don't leave any trace of them and don't take anything they have. It's pretty clear what the instructions are, right? Okay, so let's go to verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go and depart down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Sur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So let's go back and look at the instruction again. He said, you wipe all the people out. Well, they, they spared the king. Okay. Kill all the animals. Well, they, they killed some of them. The lame ones, the ones that had the mange, the ones that had disease. They killed those. But the good ones... They didn't kill those. They kept those for themselves, right? So they've blown it. Saul's blown it here again. So let's see what happens in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel... Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he has set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear? What about this king Saul? He's been given an instruction, and he doesn't do it. And then he goes and sets up a monument for himself on a mountain like he's, like he's some big stuff. And then the prophet of God comes into him and he just outright lies. He said, well, I've kept the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel calls him out on it. And he says, oh, well, if you kept God's commandment, then why do I hear all these animals out here? You're supposed to have destroyed them, you know. Uh, let's see what Saul's response is when Samuel calls him out. Verse 15, Saul said, they brought them, look at that, they brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. See, he's in denial here. He's like, I didn't do that. I didn't take those sheep and those oxen. The people did that. They did that. I didn't have anything to do with that. And look at the reason why he gives that the people supposedly did this. He says, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. What's he saying here? He's saying, the Lord's not my God. 
The Lord's not the God of the people. He's your God, Samuel, and I acknowledge that. But we brought these animals to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And then here at the end, he says, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So remember the part of the instruction that they were supposed to destroy everything? He's including himself in on that. He said, no, I did that. You know, the, the destroy part, I did that. I was with them on that, but they're the ones, they, the people, brought the animals. I'm the king, and they're supposed to do what I say, but I had nothing to do with that. Well, that's a lie, and he's the king. Of course, he had everything to do with it. They're supposed to be obeying what he's saying, and he's not acknowledging that the Lord is his God, and you know, that's really his problem. He's never, the Lord is not his God, and so he doesn't trust in God's instructions because he doesn't trust God in his heart. Do you see that? So let's see what uh, Samuel's response is in verse 17. He says, And Samuel said, Though you are little in your eyes, you are, not, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And then in verse 19, he says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought back Agag, the king of the Amalek, and I have just devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil and sheep and the oxen and the best of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So even when he's confronted again a second time, he's stubborn. He's saying, it's the people's fault. I didn't do that. Now, he admits that he allowed King Agag, he brought him back. He admits that part. But he's still refusing any responsibility for this. And he's again saying, we're doing it for the Lord your God, Samuel. We're doing it for the Lord your God. Well, look at what Samuel's response is to him. In verse 22, it says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, The Lord has rejected you from being king. So sad. He's telling him, not only is your kingdom going to end, he said your reign as king is going to come to an end because you have not obeyed what the Lord has told you to do. What is this rebellion up here in verse 23? What is that talking about? Rebellion is the sin that Satan had. Satan told God, he said, I will not be dominated by you. My My throne will ascend above the stars. I will be like the Most High. You're not going to dominate me. You're not going to tell me what to do. That's what Saul's doing here. He's rebelling against God. He's in rebellion. And what does it mean to have a sin of divination? What does that mean? Divination is witchcraft. It's trafficking with the devil. It's making a deal with the devil. Friends, when when there's something in the Word of God and it, it tells you, an instruction of what to do, and you say, I will not do it, 
You're never more like Satan than when you do that because that's exactly what Satan did. Satan said, I will not be dominated by God. And friends, we, if we want a relationship with, with God, we have to come through Jesus and we have to be submitted. We have to come under the authority of Jesus Christ, okay? And you have to submit your life to him one time and then you have to live each day, each moment at a time under, the, under Christ's care and control. And the way we find out what God's will is for us is in this book here. And that's why you need to pick it up and you need to read it. And that's why you need to come to church and assemble yourselves where you can learn about what God's instructions are. Because if you will not obey the instructions of the Lord, you are in rebellion. And the Bible says that you're practicing witchcraft. What is it talking about here when it says presumption is as iniquity and idolatry? What is presumption? Well, presumption is just like Saul. I can do whatever I want, and it pleases God. You know, I, 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 I did go to the battle. I wiped out a lot. I wiped out most of the Amalekites. I say, let the king live. I devoted some of the animals to destruction. I did, I did my part. It should be good enough. It's assuming that we can just do whatever we want. It's okay with God. You can live however you want. God's, God's grace is going to cover me. That's a sin of presumption. And, let me, and it's being stubborn. It's, it's even after being confronted with his sin, he says, I have obeyed the commandments of the Lord. He told him, he said, I, I did what God told me to do. I obeyed that. That's what presumption is. It's just being stubborn and refusing to accept my responsibility of my sin. And what is that, what is that like? It's like iniquity and idolatry. What is iniquity? Iniquity is a premeditated decision that a person makes that they, they are not going to follow the will of God, that they're going to engage in willful sin and that they're not going to ask for repentance. It's different from a sin that you might fall into sometime and then you ask God to forgive you. That's what a sin is. But iniquity is different. Iniquity is a premeditated decision that you make to, in, to rebel against God, to engage in sinful practice and not ask for repentance, to not ask God to forgive you. That's what iniquity is. And when we engage in iniquity, it becomes an idol. And the reason for that is, is that you're finding more comfort in what you're doing. You're finding more satisfaction in what you're doing than you do in God. And that's what an idol is. It's when you put God behind what you want to do. That's what an idol is. And because of that, he lost his kingdom. Now, friends, some of you, what, what Saul really did was here is he took something that didn't belong to him. God did not give him the spoil of the Amalekites. He didn't give him those sheep. He didn't give him the oxen. He didn't give him the life of the king. But he wanted those, and he took it, and it didn't belong to him. And some of you in this room, and some of you online, you're also taking something that doesn't belong to you. You need to hear me. You say, well, what am I taking that doesn't belong to me? Some of you are not paying tithes and offerings to this church. Some of you are not doing it. And I'm here to tell you, the word of the Lord says that the tithe does not belong to you. A tithe means tenth. It's the first 10% of what you make. Now, if you don't have a job, I'm not talking to you. If you don't have an income, I'm not talking to you. If you're not a member of this church, I'm not talking to you. But if you, if you are watching online and you're not in church membership and you live in another country 
or another city, you do need to get in a church home. And you do need to assemble yourselves. Your tithe belongs in the church where you're spiritually fed. Let's read about this in Leviticus uh, chapter 30, verses 30 and 32. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. Friends, the first 10% of what you make is holy to the Lord, and it does not belong to you. It does not belong to you. In the Bible in Malachi, the Bible says, bring the tithe into the storehouse. And the reason it says bring the tithe and rather than give the tithe is because the tithe does not belong to you to give. It belongs to the Lord. It says bring it, okay? And so some of you in here are taking something that does not belong to you. You're just like Saul. You're taking something that does not belong to you. And you say, well, that's in the Old Testament, Rob. And, you know, I'm not a herdsman. I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't make my living being a, uh, you know, raising vegetables. Friends, the principle is the same. This was the income that they had in an agrarian society. And with us, we get paid, whether it's in cash or electronic payment. And I'm telling you that the principle has not changed. And we see it even in the New Testament in Matthew 23, 23. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the rest. Now, the problem with the Pharisees, they were trying to be righteous with God by their good deeds. They tithed of their income, and they also, when people gave them little seeds, they counted them out, and every tenth one they gave it to God. And they said, well, I'm good. Now I can do whatever I want to because I've paid my tithe. And that's not what I'm talking about here. Okay, remember, you've got to get your heart right first with Jesus. You've got to have a relationship with Jesus. But once you've done that, okay, does Jesus expect you to tithe? Well, look, here what he says. He says, this, these you ought to have done. He's acknowledging that, yeah, you should be tithing, even of the little things. Everything that we get, every dollar that you get, you do a scratch-off ticket, and, uh, you know, hopefully we're not, you know, I'm not endorsing gambling here because I don't believe it's a legitimate business, but I'm just giving an example. You get a scratch-off ticket and you win $5. Don't cash that ticket in and get some more tickets. You pay 50 cents if you don't have it to the church, and then you can get another ticket if that's what you want to do. I hope you're not doing that. I'm just giving that as an example. The first 10% of what you make belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to you. And you need to hear me because... You know, if you insist on taking something that does not belong to you, God is going to take back something he gave you, okay? God gave Adam and Eve the Garden of Eden. He did not give them the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They wanted the tree, so God took back the garden. God gave David the favor of Israel. He did not give him Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He wanted Bathsheba, so God took back the favor of Israel. God gave Saul the majesty of a nation. He did not give him the Amalekite spoil. He didn't give him the sheep and oxen. He wanted the sheep and oxen, so God took back the majesty of a nation. Friends, God gave us 90% of our income. He did not give you the tithe 
which means tenth. If you want the tithe, God is going to take back something you, he gave you. Now you're saying, is God going to judge me? If you're a child of God and you have Jesus in your heart, he's not going to judge you. But the Bible says that he disciplines and he scourges every son that he loves. And God will discipline you. Just ask, go, go read the book of Jonah and find out what, to him, what happened to him when he disobeyed God. God didn't put him in the whale because he, he didn't love him. He put him there because he did love him. He was trying to help him. And God sends people and pain, two primary ways of instruction, people and pain. God will send a message to you, and if you won't obey the message, then he may send a painful experience. And I'm telling you today, the tithe does not belong to you. Some of you in the altar call today, you need to come up and you need to say, you need to repent and you need to start tithing. And it needs to go to the storehouse, which is the church where you're spiritually fed. If you're a member of this church and you call Jesus your Lord, then you should be tithing to this church. And if you're not a member, I'm not talking to you, okay? I want to just be that clear, but you should tithe where you are a member. All right, so let's read the rest of the story, and we'll start again with chapter, with uh, verse 23. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and, and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Friends, he's asking Samuel to pardon his sin. Samuel can't pardon his sin. He still doesn't acknowledge the Lord as his God. Only the Lord can pardon our sin. And look up here, he's saying that the reason he did these things is because he feared the people. He's more concerned about the popularity polls. You know, we see all these poll numbers on TV. He was more concerned about what the people thought about him than what God thinks about him. And there's a verse in Proverbs that says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That's something that we all need to remember. And then in verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom from, of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. As the worship team comes, and as our prayer counselors come to the front, friends, I just want to go over this verse with you. Let's go back from the core truth. Let's go to this last verse. This, in my opinion, is the most important verse in the whole Bible right here. Of all of the 800,000 words in the Scripture, this verse, 1 Samuel 15, 29, is so important. And if you're taking notes, I want you to also write down Numbers 23, verse 19. It's the companion verse. God doesn't lie. God doesn't change his instructions. He doesn't have regret. Once he says something, it's not going to change. He doesn't lie. Why is it important to know that about God? Why is it important to know that God doesn't lie? It's because this book contains the Word of God. And if we can know that everything in here is true, that the word of the Lord proves true. You can base your life on the instructions that are in this book. You can have confidence 
that even when the Philistines are at your border and even when the support that you have is going away and even when your circumstances make it seem like that you should do something else and that you shouldn't do what is in this book, you know, maybe you should move in with the person you're dating with or maybe you don't have to go to Guatemala. Somebody else can do it. But the word of the Lord proves true and the God doesn't lie and you can base your life on this. That's why this verse is so important. So important. I think it's the most important verse in the whole Bible. And I'm going to leave you with our core truth. Again, the core truth is the instructions that you follow determine the future you'll create.